Reading from Genesis 28, verses 10 through 19, uh, Jacob starting his family. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will be spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch you over wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early the next morning, Jacob took a stone he had placed under his head and set it upon a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. May God bless this reading. aren't always what they seem. Jacob will learn this. Jacob is on the move. He's fleeing the wrath of his brother Esau, heading to Haran, and yet still in the land of Canaan. And it's on one of these days that, as the sun is setting, that he makes camp. And I love that the text is so specific here that he takes one of the stones and puts it under his head like a pillow and lies down. Apparently, they hadn't heard of Tempur-Pedic at that point, but whatever, to each his own. But that night, he has this radical dream. There's a ladder connecting earth to heaven. And there were angels that were ascending and descending on this ladder. And however, I find it interesting that it's not the angels that speak, but rather God, the Lord who speaks to Jacob directly. The Lord says an abundant promise, telling him that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac, and that he's going to give him and all his offspring the land on which he lies, and his offspring was so numerous like the dust of the earth. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed, he says, in you and in your offspring. That's a pretty amazing promise, and it goes even further. Hear these words of presence. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. 
and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And then Jacob awakes and says these words that have now become famous. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he sort of shudders in fear at the grandeur of this moment and says, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. I think we can all say that we too are complicit and convicted of being in experiences where God was in this place and other places in our lives, and we did not recognize God. We might be, however, in another moment of our lives, minding our own business, we thought, doing our own thing, mowing the lawn. There's been a lot of that going on. Sweeping the house, washing car, talking to friend, reading book, fighting disease, and thinking we were all alone and yet, either in a unique moment or perhaps looking back, We said, surely God was in this place, and we didn't know it. Recently, I experienced a Jacob moment. I was in a prayer chapel at the top of a mountain near Burnsville, and when I walked in the chapel with glass on almost all sides, you could see this incredible view. And when I went closer to the altar table, I saw a Bible on it, And it was open to this very passage, and it was underlined, actually. How dare they underline the Word of God? (laughs) But I was pleased when I saw what it was underlined. It said, or it was underlined, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I was very taken with this. In fact, I could feel the holiness around me. You've had those moments where you knew you were standing on holy ground. In fact, I knew that because it created sort of an expansive place within me, a more generous and generative place. And I knew God was in that place. But it was later, when I came down the mountain, <laughs> that I asked myself, why is it so hard for me to recognize God and these other places in my life without the great view. Which got me thinking, maybe it's all in the view. Things are not always what they seem. We can think something looks a certain way, a situation, for example, but like Jacob, be careful. We may not be seeing it all. Our view may be eclipsed, for God is in this place, and we knew it not. As a child, I loved the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. (laughs) Tells my age, as if you didn't know. This movie, like any good children's movie, um, if you've seen A Bug's Life, aunts, any of these with your grandkids or kiddos, 
What I loved about it as a child is it showed this whole ecosystem. When they shrink, they're in the glades of grass, and they see like a cockroach upside down, and it's magnified, of course, and everything is huge, and there's just this whole life teeming that they've never been aware of. And that's had a lot of spiritual implications for my life. It's only when we put our head to the ground that we really see ants or roly-polies or small spiders, but they're always there. It's just our view. But of all people, we moderns should believe that things aren't what they seem. We are the people of the microscope, the atom, DNA, sending people to the moon, One of my favorite stories Glenda has told me was about a favorite memory at the beach. She had gone down to the shore and and collected some beautiful shells, and she had put them on the coffee table. And the next morning when she got up, they were gone. The shells were not shells. (laughs) They were alive. They were actually crabs. And now she had a bunch of crabs to find in her house. (laughs) Things aren't always what they seem. Something that can seem dead can be alive. Isn't this what we praise on the resurrection morning? That our Christ, whom they were looking for the dead one, was alive. The problem is so often we have trouble recognizing God because God is in our box. Okay, this is something I have said so many times. This is my sermon. Of course, we expect God to be in church, our devotional times, special life events. But for many of us who increasingly grow frustrated with our lack of intimacy with God, I want you to hear this. Today... Let us be open to change our point of view, view, our vista point. Lauren Winter, in her newest book, Fresh Off the Press, Wearing God, states in the introduction that she began to realize that her pictures of God were old. They were old like a seventh grade health textbook from 1963. Moderately interesting for what it might say about culture and science in 1963, but generally out of date. She says, my pictures of God weren't of Zeus on a throne, the Sistine Chapel God. Instead, my pictures were some combination of sage professor and boyfriend. And while sage professor and boyfriend might, as metaphors, have some true and helpful things to say about God, I found that neither of them had much to say about this new journey of friendship with God that I was on. Part of our struggle, perhaps, with our intimacy, our connection, our friendship with God, which she argues throughout the book, our way of being with God, lies in our very images Just like Jacob, we can be in God's very presence and know it not. 
If we think our God looks and smells and tastes and breathes a certain way, does things a certain way, and then we never experience God, saying, where is this God? Maybe we should consider that God looks, smells, tastes, breathes, does things a little differently. We might be experiencing God's presence and know it not. Our images of God matter. Our metaphors of God matter. And in case you don't remember a metaphor, a metaphor is comparing two things, usually dissimilar things, not using like or as. This is a metaphor. And metaphorical language floods our scriptures. This is how we know God is through metaphor. And I want to argue today that it could possibly be that our relationship with God is stunted, stymied, fill in the blank, because our images of God are limited. The truth is God doesn't fit any one image. As Marcia Falk says, all images are necessarily partial. Like Jacob or me, not on a mountaintop, we need a new view. And Lauren Winter talks about how in most churches, we usually have two or three favored images. She says, your church might primarily describe God as king or light of the world or ruler of all. We have those. She says, in my church, we tend to call God Father or speak of God as shepherd or great physician. So those are her primary metaphors. She reveals, however, in her book how the early church gave attention to many images of God that we now overlook. Beekeeper. Homeless man. Tree. And then she states, In fixing on any three or four primary metaphors for God, we have truncated our relationship with the divine, and we have cut ourselves off from the more voluble and variable witness of the scriptures, which depict God as clothing, as fire, as comedian, sleeper, water, dog. I love what she does. She awakens us to see God in new ways. And she gives a little background for this. She, I love this. She talks about the, the psychological and even medical reasons why our images of God matter. Look at this quote from the University of Miami. Among HIV patients, better immune functioning is found among those who have an image of God that is more compassionate and loving than those who have images of God as more judgmental and punitive. Changes in God image changes T-cells in randomized trials. She also says there are social and political implications to our images of God. And she draws on the work of Mary Dolly and Judith Plaskow, who pointed this out, saying... The characteristics we attribute to God will always be those characteristics we value most highly in our society. 
We will value what we take God to be. And perhaps conversely, it's what we value that we take God to be. For example, if we say that a core characteristic of God is mercy, we will value merciful people. If we imagine God as one who nurtures, we will value nurturing. If we pray to a God who is a property owner, as the parables of the vineyard show, we admire people who own houses and land, perhaps. If we focus instead on God as a homeless man, as Matthew 8.20 and Luke 9.58 portray, we might accord homeless people more esteem. I think she's right. There's a richness in scripture of images all over the Old and New Testament that we have overlooked, that we haven't even plunged the depths of. And we typically, as she says, fixate on a few. And some of that is very rich, but Winner says the downfall of that is those images become placeholders. And it minimizes our creative imagination of God. Let's try a little sample, okay? So I'm going to ask you something. So here's some words from our scripture. Tell me what this image sounds like. Sustaining him in a desert land shielding him, caring for him, as an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, as it spreads its wings, takes them up, and bears them aloft on its pinions, feeding him with produce of the field, nursing him with honey from the crags. This is the one who gave you birth. Who does that sound like? Mother. Yes, thank you. This is a description of a maternal God taking care of Jacob, actually, in Deuteronomy, the first passage that was read today by Jerry. Can we see God as mother? This requires a new view, a new image for some. But I believe, as Winter points out, too, that until we can expand our images of God, our view of God will be limited. Unfortunately, what happens is we come to these moments where we say, surely you're in this place, but I can't see you because I only see you as a man. Or surely you were in this place, but I can't see you because I only see you as judge. Or surely you were in this place, but I can only, cannot see you because I only see you as an American. Or surely you were in this place, but I cannot see you because I only see you as a grandfather. Fill in the blank. I think today of all days may require a view change. To try seeing God in a different way. Let's just start by seeing God as mother. For some of you, this is no stretch. (laughs) Some of you are like, whoa. So let me let you in on a little secret. God has no sex. 
No gender. God is neither male nor female. Did you know? These have been attributed to God by us. Of course, Jesus is a man, and rightfully referred to as him in the personal pronoun, and he referred to God as Father, the language of personal relationship for Jesus. But ontologically, in his very, her, his, see, pronouns are so messed up, by the way. Ontologically, we know that God is spirit, and therefore neither male nor female. God is spirit. Of course, this gets into deep conversation theologically, which I think is worthy to be had because we need new images of God or to discover the ones that are already there. But here's the goal. My goal is not to get you to stop thinking of God as a man and more like a woman or Alanis Morissette. That's from an old movie. I just want to stretch whatever image and view you're looking out from. God is not a woman either, as I said, but God has maternal characteristics. Have we been missing seeing the God in our midst because we weren't looking for a God that nurses us, birthed us, fed us? My main goal is to bring out, as I said, your imagination and curiosity in the scriptures to see more of God. In fact, all metaphors are inferior. And I love what one writer, Carolyn Jane Bowler, says, and this is really an important distinction about metaphor and how we speak of God. She says, Every meaningful metaphor implies some differences between the thing and to that which it points. When a metaphor suggests something quite the opposite of what we think, it can evoke a negative reaction that actually might help clarify the objects under consideration. To be useful... A metaphor for God needs to evoke two reactions at the same time. Oh, yes, God is like that. And, well, God is not quite like that. Perhaps today you came in here needing a view change, a different place to stand from, a new vista to see life. I pray that you will lean into the God who is rich, the God who is all around us, she who is trying to get your attention as a loving mother or as an artist or as a pediatrician or a cartographer or an engineer or a master gardener or a great comedian or my favorite, a rock and roller. Whatever image God is calling you to be aware of today. So here's to the standing on the mountain or in the valley of the shadow or anywhere in between and getting a new view. Amen.